All right, good morning, everyone. Hymn 35, TLH 35, stanzas 1, 5, and 6. Songs of praise the angels sang and with alleluia's rang when creation was begun when God spake and it was done saints below with heart and voice still in songs of praise rejoice learning here by faith and love songs of praise to sing above born upon their latest breath songs of praise shall conquer death then amidst eternal joy songs of praise their powers employ let us pray lord jesus christ son of the living god have mercy upon us amen again we pray O lord we pray that your grace may always go before and follow after us that we may continually be given to all good works through jesus christ your son our lord who lives and reigns with you and the holy spirit one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week is from Isaiah chapter 55. Let's speak this together. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, and without price. Ho is like saying, hey, listen up. Attention, everybody. It's like an exclamation mark. Not every translation has it in there. Some of them just say, come. Uh, and in the Greek version, it just says, all of you who are hungry, or all of you who are thirsty, come here. It's in the vocative. Oh, you who thirst. Okay, but that's, it's an attention marker. Hey, pay attention. Everyone who thirsts. How many who thirst? Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. What should water make you think of? Yeah, exactly. Anytime you hear talk about water or waters, there is a baptismal element there. So pay attention to that. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This should also make you think of the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So it's not just about are you physically hungry and are you, phys are you physically thirsty. Everyone who thirsts, it's more than that. Come to the waters. The other thing that you should think of when it refers to water and being thirsty is what? Old Testament account. No, they didn't drink the floodwaters. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's Moses. 
Hitting the rock, yeah, water from the rock. And what is the rock? Rather, who is the rock? Christ. So we say, if you thirst, come to the waters because Christ satisfies. Christ satisfies. So you see, in waters, all of that is included, that there is baptismal reference. There's also the idea of satisfaction, not that baptism isn't a satisfaction of sorts, but satisfaction in that your wants and needs are fulfilled. Uh, even as they wander in the desert, Christ follows and provides his provides water for them to drink. Yes? Well, in that culture, uh, in the desert climate, the waters, would they not be then the, the, uh, the destination, the focus of what was good? Sure. Rather than the dry land? Right. You want to go to the place where there's water. And somebody would generally own the water, so somebody would own the well, like when Moses goes and the daughters of Jethro have the well. So they own the well. So the person who owns the well is going to be the one that satisfies you. So, so the one who's owning the well here is not charging you anything for it, and he's not telling you to go find a different water. He's saying, hey, come here. This is a place that's good. I wonder if it, it gives kind of the feeling of flowing water, maybe. Could be. Could be. You know that the didache says to... I don't think it, yeah, I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think it can be all of it. The Didache says that you should baptize in living water, which is great, because does it mean a flowing stream, or does it mean that water that's alive with the Word of God? Who knows? Does it have to be just one? See, this is what I, I'm trying to condition you, by the way, so that when you read the Bible, you don't think that it has to be only one thing. When it says the waters, is it water in a hole in the ground or flowing waters? Who cares? Why does it have to be one? Why can't it be all? Why can't it be both and? You see, that's, that's the way that the Bible, if the Bible has layers like an onion, then you have to be willing to say that it can be both and. Uh, that's why you can also say that this is references to the rock and to baptism. Because it, who says it has to be just one thing? And you who have no money, who is one who has no money? Whoops. What would you call someone with no money? Poor. poor. And what does a poor person do? Beggars. Yes, poor beggars. The people who have no money are the poor, the beggars. And instead of casting the beggars away, they are invited, again, this come, just like last week, is not a command, get over here and drink the water, get over here and buy the wine. It's an invitation, come. Come on in. Like when you go to someone's house and they open the door and they say, come in and make yourself at home. Is it a command? No, yes, I'll make myself comfortable. You know? No, it's an invitation, but it's an imperative invitation. Come on in. You who have no money, come. Buy and eat. How do you have the ability to buy if you don't have money? Pardon me? Okay, you can have credit. How else? You can charge it to somebody else. Yes, yes, yes. Good. Put it on Bill's tab. <laughs> Come and eat. Now, what, does, what should this make you think of? 
come and eat, when Jesus says come and eat, communion. communion, yeah, which also ties in here. So first of all, Christ is satisfying again here. If this is baptismal and this is Eucharistic, then the two of these together are sacramental, which of course makes sense. His body is given, and what is the whole point of the rock? How, is the, how does the rock give water? In the wilderness, the rock, does it just, is it like a little drinking fountain that goes around? Yeah, it's struck. And why is it important that the rock is struck? That was the command of God. Yes, but, you're, but why? Why is that the command? Why couldn't God have just said, touch it? Why does it have to be struck? Yes, 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 because Jesus is stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The rock is stricken, Jesus is stricken. And then in John's gospel, his side is pierced, and what comes out? Water, just like the rock that is struck and water comes out. Jesus is on the cross, and his side is pierced, and water comes out. Flesh and blood and water, it's all the sacraments, the big sacraments, okay? So you who have no money, come buy and eat. Now you remember we talked about some ways that you can buy without money, and that starts to solidify here. Yes, indeed. Wait, I don't know how. I don't think I can do that. Yes, interjection. You can come anyway if you don't have money and buy wine and milk without money and without price, which means that how are it's free to you but it isn't free big important lesson in life if you haven't learned it already nothing is free no that's yeah that's better ain't no free lunch yes it was already charged to somebody else it's like your it's like your ticket to the wedding banquet you don't have to pay for it because it's already been paid for it's expensive it's like your ticket to the Met Gala. You, your $35,000 ticket. Thinly veiled commentary. Morris? Uh, when someone uh, uh, presents a concept or an opportunity and you say, yeah, I want to buy into it. Uh -huh. Buy in rather than putting out money, but buying into the thought, come buy in and eat, then what you're buying into is Christ. Sure, In, an investment. Or I would, I guess, I'm going to tweak your language just a little bit. I would say a participation. Yes. To buy into Christ would be a participation in all that Christ would have. Rather than actually a transaction, you are buying into sure. I would, I would get on board with that. I'd have to look at the original language to see what it actually says, but I'm fine with it being both of those things. Again, it doesn't have to be just one. But now here's the other thing. Wine and milk. Let's see if you can, let's see if you can follow me here. What is the deal with, with milk especially, but with the, the combination of wine and milk? Where else do you hear about milk in the Old Testament? 
Milk and honey, yeah. The land of milk and honey with grapes. They make wine out of the grapes. It's a rich land flowing with fruit and with milk, something that's rich and precious. So come and buy wine and milk is to say take part in paradise. To buy wine and milk is to take part in paradise. Which is the new promised land. Because remember that uh, Moses is only a type of Christ. So when he takes the people to the promised land, is that the only place? Is that just Canaan? We go to Canaan and well, the promise of the Lord is fulfilled now. Not quite. That's the best answer you could have possibly given. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is at work. Because it's half true, yes. Uh, the, the promises of God are fulfilled locally in that he did say this land was going to be your heritage. But there's a greater and deeper part of that promise, which is that the new promised land is life eternal in the presence of God. Right, the new covenant. That's, so there's a new promised land, and the new Moses is the one who leads you into the new promised land, and that is Christ. So Christ is the one that takes you to the new promised land, which is the place of milk and honey and wine. And in there, there are waters that give relief, baptism, and there is wine and food. You come to a table and you eat and you drink, which is the Eucharist, and all of this stuff is sacramental. It is uh, paradisical. It is eschatological, the end times, and it is current right now, the things right now. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you don't have money, if you are a poor, needy beggar, then the place where you need to be is right in that sanctuary and at that altar. All that in one verse. Yes. Uh, and there could be more if I, if I wanted there to be. <laughs> but I, we don't have the time for that. All right, let's speak this again. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is the benefit of this eating and drinking? These words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins show us that in the sacrament Forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is the forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Just two quick things to highlight about this. All these things are given through these words. That doesn't mean that Jesus isn't actually in the sacrament with his body and with his blood working in those very things. As if it's to say, you're going to eat some bread and you're going to drink some wine and it's the words that were spoken over them that are going to give you forgiveness, but not the very thing that you put in your mouth. That's not what is being said here. When it says through these words, it means that the word does what it says. So when the word says, this is my body and it is for your forgiveness, what does it do? Well, yes. If, it's, if it first says, this is my body, and it will forgive your sins. So first it, the word makes that, it makes that his body. And then because it's his body, it 
gives the forgiveness of sins. Okay, do you see that? The word does what it says because the word is living and active and the word is Christ. When the word speaks, stuff happens. When God speaks, creation happens. The word does what it says. When the Lord says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven because the word says what it does. Or excuse me, it does what it says. Okay? Um, the next little bit is this, where there's the forgiveness of sins, which is what is offered there, there's also life and salvation. So the forgiveness of sins is the big thing, and because of the forgiveness of sins, other things follow. This is because the consequence of sin is death. So wherever there is even one tiny sin, there is death, which means that if sin is gone, there will be Right, life is the default. That's what you need to understand. Life is actually the default setting. And death is not. Death is foreign. It is invaded. But it isn't the default. The default is life. So when death is the, the problem that is dealt with, then it goes back, it reverts to the default, which is life. If there is no sin, there can't be any death. Make sense? Okay. To Sunday school, kids. Okay, any questions about anything that we talked about last week? Uh, okay, Brenda. Sure, yeah. Because isn't the Christian life one of perpetual striving for what is good? So when you fall and you walk down the wrong way, then there is this internal struggle where you continue to fight against the old will and assert the will of faith and live a life of holiness. So it, that is what you are supposed to do, but there's more to that than simply, it, it includes saying you need, this is a discipline and you need, it's something you need to work at, but it is not only that. It is also a confession of the reality of what life is like. Because here's the thing, you've got wicked flesh, right? And you don't know that you have wicked flesh, and then all of a sudden you are baptized and your eyes are opened and now you've got knowledge because you only knew evil before but now you know good. And now because you know good, you know what is right in addition to what is wrong. Whereas before all you knew was what was wrong and you could have lived a really happy life but now you can't live a happy life because you know what's good. So you're always trying to go after the thing which is good but there's always that battle inside of you that says, no, 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 I want what is bad for me. And then you do it. You, you seek after the things that are bad for you. And then you repent and you work harder and you strive. The, the spiritual life is a life of discipline. That, there's a reason that that word is there, spiritual disciplines. Fasting during Lent and any other time you want to fast 
is a discipline. Because guess what? Newsflash, if you haven't tried it before, fasting is not easy. In fact, it's very difficult because it's uncomfortable. Um, all of the spiritual disciplines are uncomfortable. Prayer is uncomfortable. Who wants to take time out of their day to pray? Nobody does. Why? Because we're all so busy. We're all so busy. And then you, you get to the end of the day and you go, oh boy, I'm so tired. Oh, I really should have prayed. I'll do it tomorrow. And then guess what you don't do tomorrow is pray. You don't pray. It's a discipline. You, it, it's something you have to create. Guess what? Not everybody likes going to church on Sunday mornings. Sometimes I'm one of them. Okay? So it isn't about coming here or not coming here because you want to or you feel like it's going to make you happy to come here. There's a deeper reality. It's a discipline to get yourself up and to get to church, but the disciplines are always worth it because there is a great benefit to having the disciplines. Having a disciplined and a rigidly structured prayer life is very good for you because it helps you to fight temptations. It helps to structure and order your life around things that are not worldly. Coming to church on Sunday morning diligently is a discipline that is beneficial because you grow closer to Christ by partaking of his body and blood, by receiving his word, by receiving his absolution. It gives you strength to endure in the world around you. Uh, it also makes it, the, you know, the more you attend church, the less uh, difficult it is to go to church. The longer you stay away, the harder it is. And then you've got people who missed a couple Sundays and then ended up missing five years of church just because they lost the habit. They didn't discipline themselves. Fasting is the same way. It's a discipline. It's really hard to fast, especially when, if you're fasting from specific foods, you still have those foods in the house. And you open the cupboard and you think, all I really want is some Oreo cookies dog on it, but I'm not allowed to have them. You throw out, you know, it's better to throw out the leaven so you're not even tempted to use it. Don't even have it in your house. Ah, look, God knows what he's doing, right? But this is the Christian life. It's one of discipline, one of order, one of the practice of piety. You're doing this stuff so that you can get better at doing this stuff, so that you can be a better Christian, so that you can work harder at being better at doing these things, so that you can be a better Christian. And the goal of being a better Christian is always what? Change? No. Being a better Christian is going to bring about change anyway. But the end goal of it, why, do, why should you want to be a better Christian? What did you say? But are you only doing it for the reward? It's like when you go to work, do you only do your work because you want the paycheck? I mean, maybe you do. <laughs> Maybe you really hate your job and you only show up because you want money. But it, the heavenly reward is greater. There's a greater motivation to want to be a better Christian. Okay, sure, it makes your life. There's, that's pragmatic. Okay, now you're starting to get onto what I would think is the, the better track. You, I mean, sure, you can be pragmatic. Yes, your life does go better if you're a more disciplined and a better Christian. Absolutely, it does. It doesn't always mean your life is going to be more comfortable, but it does mean your life is going better. And, you know, when you're disciplined about prayer, when you're disciplined about the rigidity of your life, when you keep yourself busy, when you stay away from evil things and you only touch holy things, you can actually see a change in yourself to where a lot of the temptations that you previously struggled with start to become easier to resist or stop tempting you at all. That doesn't mean you won't stop sinning because where one temptation or, or one chink in your armor gets stronger and starts to resist, 
there's another part that wears thin. So you'll, that's why it's, a, it's constant. It's this constant cycle of trying to beat your temptations, to be holy. But the, the goal is that in your Christian life, you grow closer to God and that you reflect God to the neighbor. And it's hard to reflect God to the neighbor when you're a really impious Christian. It's really hard to tell somebody that they ought to pray when you don't pray. And it's really hard to help somebody pray when you don't know how to pray because you never created the discipline or the habit. Yes, Bill. That word that you used there, the habit, I used to tell people that church going was a habit that had to be developed. And then I, as I thought about that, I thought that's, maybe that's not biblical exactly. That church going should be an act of faith rather than just a that's something we do on Sunday morning. Yeah, you don't ever want it to become an empty work that I go to church on Sunday. Why? Well, because that's what I do, if that's ever the answer. Or, you know, and it's the same with traditions of the church. If you ever ask me why we do X, Y, or Z in church, excuse me, and I say, because that's what we do as Lutherans then you should fight with all of your might to make sure we don't do that thing. Because if the only answer to why we do what we do, whether it's going to church or the specific practices of what happened in the church is, well, because that's what we do, then it's empty. Then it's, you're just performing an act. And then we've turned ourselves into a three-ring circus because the only thing we're doing is putting on a show. That's, I think, habit... You can talk about it being habitual as long as you understand it, that it's a cognizant habit. It's a habit that you think about and work at. And that's a, that's a good way to think about it. But habit as in you get up and you do it and you don't even think about it, you know, that's like memorization versus learning by heart. If, if you memorize the liturgy, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice because then you come to church and you don't think about it and you just speak it from memory, but you, but you don't really know about it. You just, I don't need to use the book anymore because I memorized it. Um, but if you learn it by heart, then your heart is, and your faith are actually digesting it, you know, ruminating on it. And then every time you come back to church, that cud comes up, and you might be able to speak it without using the book, but you're not thinking about it any less than you would have been using the book. You see the difference? So every time it comes back, you regurgitate it and start ruminating on it more, and you do that your whole life, because you can never quite swallow it all down. It's just too much for you. Larry, you had a question too. Back to the original thing in there. Uh -huh. Okay, God allows sin. Here, you have to make the decision. Go with him or go with him. When you get to heaven, does God draw the line and say, this is my house, just like you do in the NFL, this is my house, you can't be here. And therefore, he does not allow sin there. Therefore, that's why it's done. It's not that God doesn't allow sin. And, and to be fair, it's also not that God does allow sin here. Because he doesn't. If God allowed sin here, the law would just not, there wouldn't be ten commandments. And Jesus wouldn't have to tell you, hey, you know how much you love yourself? That's how much you also are supposed to love your neighbor. No, God, God doesn't allow sin. That's, that's the whole point of it. If he allowed it, you wouldn't need to come be absolved. So God doesn't allow sin because God can't tolerate sin. The only way that God can tolerate you is because of Christ. And 
I got a hobby horse to ride in just a minute here. But uh, in heaven, you don't even have to think about it. Because at the last day when Christ comes and the dead are raised and you are raised incorruptible, you are the ones clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How are you going to sin when you have a body that doesn't want to sin? When you have a body that doesn't even know what sin is? How are you going to sin? Well, you can't. You don't even understand the concept of sin because the only thing you know now is good. It's better to know good and not to know evil, actually. Because eating of the fruit, yeah, sure, now I know about evil, but then that's, that's the thing that takes over. Now I know about evil. Oh, wow, evil opens a whole lot of doors for me, but then none of those doors are good. And that's why baptism, then being brought into the church, it opens your eyes, now you know good again. But because your flesh knew evil before, and your base level in the flesh is evil, knowing good creates a battle within you. It'd, your life would be a lot easier to live if you didn't know anything about good, because then you could claim that you were ignorant. Oh, I'm ignorant. I didn't know that there was anything good. I thought I was doing, I thought I was living a pretty good life. Huh? You know, what does that sound like? Well, I lived a pretty good life. By whose standards? Because the pagan that says, well, I lived a very good life, has no idea what he's talking about because he doesn't even know what good is. But you do. And in heaven, you're not going to know anything but good. In fact, I have said this before, that you're going to recognize everybody. And if there is a reason why it might take you a couple minutes to, to recognize somebody, the, that, the only reason is not because they're not going to look familiar, it's because they're going to be so good that you're going to be taken aback by how good they are. Like, I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to say, Jim, wow, is that really you? You look, I, I didn't realize you were so good. Wow, you look fantastic. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to take you just that split second. Bill, wow, is that, Bill, oh my goodness, look at you. Look at you. That's what it's going to be. There's no, there's no sin, there's no evil, there's no nothing. And there can't be because it's consumed. Which is partly why one of the reasons I define hell or a facet of hell as the you know, eternal consumption is because you're raised because Christ already paid for your resurrection but then you decided that sin was going to be what you wanted to own and now you can't be in the presence of God because you're consumed by God. So heaven, the eternal paradise of living in the new creation, in the body, in the, you know, before the face of God at the heavenly throne, there can't be any sin there because if there was, then it would be hell because you'd be being consumed. Yeah, so it's not that he allows or doesn't allow, it's just that there is sin here, he doesn't allow it, which is why things are here the way they are in the church, why he, we have all these sacraments and means of grace and all these gifts and things, and why he says, hey, use those, take your medicine. And then in heaven, there just isn't sin. Okay? Now, here's my hobby horse. I hate it when people say, Jesus accepts me just the way I am. Some of you know why I'm saying this. Because he doesn't. How do you know he doesn't? <laughs> because he died. If you were so great, and if he really accepted you just the way you are, he wouldn't have died for you. Do you, do you see that? Now, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love you. 
He does. In fact, Jesus loves you so much he wants to make you better. He loves you so much he can't accept you just the way you are because he knows that you can be better. So he wants to make you better. He'll love you just the way you are, but he doesn't accept you the way that you are. Heck, he doesn't even let you get into his front door without first doing something to you to change you. And think about that. How do you get into the church? Pardon me? How do you get into the church? Through, through the door. Okay. Yeah, smart, smart Alec. Okay. Spiritually speaking, how do you get into the church? You're either out or you're in. How do you get in? Baptism. baptism. You get in through baptism. But what happens in baptism? Are you the same after baptism as you were before? No. So there's a change, right? Well, <laughs> if he accepted you the way you were, he wouldn't have to have a change enacted on you just so you could walk through his front door. Come on. Well, Christ is the door. Spiritually speaking, Christ is the door that brings you in. But (laughs) baptism is the the physical way that you see Christ as the door. Sorry, is that what you meant? Oh, okay. I thought you were being a smart aleck. (laughs) Okay, well, both hands, huh? Yeah, okay. It can be the same with Bill as it is with the Bible. It doesn't have to be just one. Yeah, okay, so that's, that's a hobby horse. Don't let people convince you into thinking that Jesus accepts you just the way you are because the, there's, a, there's a problem with that too, aside from the fact that it's simply not true and that you can prove that it's not true. And, but the problem is that, and this gets back to what Brenda said, the, the problem with that is that if Jesus accepts you just the way you are, then what is the point of trying to live a better life? Because, well, because Jesus accepts me just the way I am. Well, I didn't, couldn't hear your question when you were, you asked about... She initially people. asked about the war between the spirit and the flesh. And when St. Paul says, the good that I would do is not what I do, and that which I will not to do is the very thing that I do. And that she had a friend that said, well, it doesn't, all that that means is that you need to be better. And so I, that, I commented on that. But, but the problem is, you see, if Jesus accepts you just the way you are, what's your motivation to be better? Right. You, it's, that's not the gospel. That's a gospel of emotion. Because you want to feel like you're included. Well, friends, the church will tell you that you're included. The church will tell you that Jesus loves you. You're never alone and you're never unloved once you're part of the church because you're part of Christ and you're part of a body. But that doesn't mean that you have no reason to strive to be better. And everyone's going to fail, but it doesn't mean you don't try. You know, and, and a lot of the saints of old... How do you make the world better? Well, you become a saint. That's how you do it. You become a saint. And then you look at the saints and your excuse is what? Well, they're so much better than I could be. I mean, look at, look at someone like St. Teresa of Calcutta. And then look at you yourself. And you just think, I, don't, I couldn't do the things that she does. But if you say that, then you're already resigning yourself to the fact that you are content being what you are. Well, I... I I, I couldn't. I couldn't do that. How do you know? You've never tried. Try it and see. It's all theory, but I want you to make theory and make it practical. I want you to do something with it. Because the Lord wants you to do something with it. He doesn't, he, it it's not a religion of contentment. 
It's, it, Christianity is not a religion where we tell you just sit and be comfortable all the time and you know, Jesus is going to take care of you so don't worry about it. Paul says the, 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 the complete opposite. Well, should we continue in sin and let grace abound? And the, the literal translation that Paul says there, the polite translation is, ah, no, may it never be. But the literal translation is, hell no. That's what he writes. Hell no. Is this what we're supposed to do? Hell no. Don't do that. Yes, there is grace, but this is another instance where are you going to tempt God? Are you going to say, well, I know there is grace, Lord, so I can do whatever I want and I'll ask you for forgiveness. Are you really going to tempt the Lord like that? Because I guarantee you that if you tempt the Lord like that, it's not going to go the way you think. The Lord knows his word much better than you do. And if that's the way that you're going to behave, are you seeking absolution? Are you seeking forgiveness in penitent faith? Are you repentant? If your attitude is, well, he'll forgive me, it doesn't matter what I do, is that repentance? No, that's arrogance. The Lord does not forgive arrogance. Jesus is not anybody's enemy unless they make him their enemy. And making Jesus your enemy is the worst mistake you can make. He doesn't want to be your enemy. But if that's what you want, he'll give it to you. Does that make sense? That's part of what hell is. Hell is Jesus giving you what you asked for. If you said, I don't want to be a part of you, Jesus, and he pined and pined and pined and pined after you, and finally, as he's singing you a serenade from the back garden while you stand on your balcony, you yell down at him, I don't want to see you anymore. Stop coming around my place. I'm going to file a restraining order. I never want to see you again. I'm not interested in you. I don't want a relationship with you. I want nothing to do with you. I don't want to hear your singing. I don't want to read your love letters. I don't want anything. I don't want your friends coming by. To, I, don't, I want zero. Then he says in love, okay. All right, I get, the, I get it. This is what you want. And then he gives you what you want. The problem is you don't know what you want. Now, let's talk about the soul a little bit. Does that answer your questions? Okay. The souls of the godly who depart this life do not perish. Instead, they survive. The soul is demanded back, not destroyed. Remember, the soul is spirit. The soul is immortal. The soul does not die even though the body dies. And your body is one plus one equals one. Uh, because the body is not just flesh with a soul in it. Your body's not a vessel. You know, that's, that's one thing that troubles me when you go to funerals. Often uh, you'll hear people say, well, we know that he's in a better place because the body's just a vessel. <sighs> Eh, but is it? Is the body really just a vessel? No, this is like, the, there's the Greek tragedy, the Oresteia. I think I've talked about this before. Poor Orestes, his dad killed his sister, so his mom killed his dad, and then he killed his mom to avenge the death of his dad. And he's honor bound, it, because you have to kill your the person who killed your father, you have to kill them to avenge them, but you're also not allowed to kill your mother. 
So what do you do when your mother is the one that killed your father? So he decides he's going to uphold the honor of his father and he kills his mother. Well, then the Furies come because he's broken moral law and they're going to, they're going to charge him and take him away. And Apollo comes to his defense and says, well, the mother doesn't really matter. It's the father that matters because the mother is just a vessel that bears children. She's just a vessel. She doesn't matter. She's not a person. Now, ladies, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I think you probably wouldn't take kindly to someone saying, your life doesn't matter and you as a person don't matter because you're just a vessel. You are just a child bearer, a, what is it, a birthing person. That's the, that's the new political language, right? Because we wouldn't want to indicate that only women give birth. You're just a birthing person, that's it. That's all that you're good for is having children. When Jacob Norman's wife had 19 kids, she probably thought that. <laughs> I, I can't speak for her. <laughs> so, obviously, you are a person. We don't want to question personhood. But personhood is a really big deal. The fact that you are actually a person. But what is it that constitutes personhood? Why, women, would you argue that you matter as a person, as, as somebody that is more, that, that should be valued for who they are and not for the fact that they can give birth? Why would you say that? God created Eve. Sure, but last time I checked, you weren't a woman. Okay. <laughs> I'm just asking, the, to the women who are bothered yeah. by the idea that somebody would say that you're good for nothing but having children, why is that bothersome to you? Well, sure. I mean, it's just something that... Your identity has changed. Yeah. But, but you're good for more than having children. Yes. Definitely. And your, 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 your value is not derived by the fact that you have children. Because if that's the case, then any woman who can't have children is a worthless person. See, and then we can get into the eugenics arguments about, well, if there's a woman that can't bear children, then she ought to be, we'll just you know, send, her, send her to the showers because she doesn't contribute anything to society. She's worthless. And there's, there are a couple things that are, that are wrong with this philosophy, though more and more the, this is the philosophy of the culture. How do you determine your worth? By what you are able to contribute. So those who contribute more are worth more, and those who contribute less are worth less. And the ones who contribute nothing are worth nothing. But they are changing the definition of what their contribution is, too. They are. Well, they're also, they've also changed the definition of what a life is. Or dismissed 90% of the time. Sure. You know? 
My point, when I, to expand on what I said, God created Eve. Yeah. God created Adam and created Eve as a partnership. Mm-hmm. That the two would not only survive, but uh, increase numbers, uh, subdue the earth, whatever things you want to do. But they would do it as, in the fact that they complemented each other. Yes. That was my point was from creation, yes. man and woman should complement each other, uh-huh. not one be subservient or, or anything like that. Right, they, exactly. They complement each other. And, and um, it's not good for man to be alone. Your, your husband can't do it by himself, and your wife can't do it by herself either. And how many of you have thought about your spouse? Yep, they annoy me sometimes, but they sure do make up for a lot of my deficiencies. In the areas where I am not good, my spouse is much better. I will be the first one to tell you, I've got issues. And some of them are pretty big. Most of them are pretty big. <laughs> And my wife is a saint for tolerating me. And all of the places where I am poor and needy and beggarly and insufficient, she is. Even just from psychological profiles, men and women complement one another. They fit together mentally. They fit together physically. They fit together spiritually. There is a reason why they both exist. Your life matters because you have a life. You have worth because you have personhood. Your worth is not determined by what you are able to contribute to society because that's fickle. But if, you are, if your worth is determined by what you are able to contribute or something like, you know, viability. So on the old person spectrum, we can say, well, life is determined, the worth of your life is determined by what you contribute. Well, how many old people in that nursing home over there contribute things to society? None of them. The beauty pageant doesn't count because nobody wants to watch an old person beauty pageant. That's a joke, by the way. Okay? Just being tongue in cheek. Right? They don't contribute anything. In fact, they take. They take your tax money. They take from you. They take from your community. And all they do is sit around. They don't do anything. So, in our world order where your worth is determined by what you contribute, who do we ax first? The old people, because they're worthless. They don't contribute anything. They are not people. They are not human beings. They're creatures who do not contribute to society. Or children who are too troublesome. Yeah, or the children who are too troublesome. Why should we bother with youth detention centers and rehabilitation programs? They're just worthless, non-contributive members of society. Let's get rid of them. And then when you look at the value of your life as determined by viability, any person that has a serious illness, I mean, are you viable? Can you survive without taking your medication for your blood pressure or your diabetes or whatever? Well, then you probably shouldn't be allowed to live either. Maybe you're contributing something, and we'll weigh that against your viability, but viability is a big factor. And, excuse me, where is viability the biggest factor? In the womb. In the womb. Because can the child at three days gestation be considered viable? As in, 
If that child at three days gestation were removed from the womb of the mother, would that child survive outside the womb? Not if it's only at three days, but you, I chose three days on purpose because it's such a small number. And I'm not calling it a fetus or a zygote or whatever. It is a child. But why do we call it a child? If it has a heartbeat. What if it doesn't have a heartbeat? Six weeks is when the heart starts beating, but what about before then? When is it a, when is it a human being? When is that a person? At the moment of conception, not the moment of viability. Worth is determined by your personhood, not by what you contribute. This, think about it in this way. If we talked about love the way that we talk about human life in this culture. I only love my wife because she's pretty. What's the problem with that statement? She's not going to be pretty forever. Nope, she's not going to be pretty forever. Your wife is not always going to look the way that she did on your wedding day. But I don't care about me. No, I know, but, but the mindset doesn't care. I don't care about what she thinks of me. I only care about what I think of her. She, she said, I'm not going to be beautiful for long. <laughs> this, is not, this is hypothetical. This is not my opinion. Or if I said, I only love my wife because she cleans the house and cooks me, has a hot meal ready for me when I get home from work. Well, it is. And is that love? No, it isn't love. This is a, look at, and look at the society. People's, even in, with love and the, the secular idea of what love is, where is the worth of a, of a person derived? From how much they please you. Why am I going to live with somebody for three years before I marry them or maybe not marry them? Why? To test them. And why would I want to test them? To see if I like them. I'm going to live with them to see if it's going to work. And how do I determine if it's going to work or if it's not going to work? By how I feel. Why do you, want, why do you think so many relationships don't last? I mean, you look at some of these celebrity relationships, not that I'm into the tabloids or anything, but I mean, like a six-month wedding and they're already filing for divorce? You, the, ridiculous stuff like that. What is the issue with those marriages? Because they didn't consider what they needed to give to the relationship. Okay, they consider what they want. What, what is going to please me? I want a wife who's going to be X, Y, and Z. And if she's not going to be X, Y, and Z, well, then I don't want anything to do with her. And now she frustra frustrates me because she's not X, Y, and Z. Now we don't get along. Or they say, I don't love you anymore. <laughs> but how, how do you know if you love someone or not? I'm talking about how the secular culture. How do you know if you love someone or not? How you feel. Go to Hallmark sometime. That'll help you answer my question. There aren't any cards that talk about love the way it's supposed to be. Every one of those cards is about a feeling. Go, you know, next time you go to pick out a Valentine's Day card, look at, actually read what they say. And then think to yourself, is this really describing true love or is this describing the feeling of love? What's the problem with the feeling of love? It fades. Anybody who's ever been a teenager 
knows that that feeling doesn't really last that long. And after you get married, there is a honeymoon period where you have that feeling still for a while, and then the feeling comes and it goes. There are some days where you look at your spouse and you have that feeling. And there are other days where you look at your spouse and you say to yourself, they're lucky they even get to sleep in the same bed as me tonight. <laughs> Are you speaking hypothetically or? <laughs> yeah, purely hypothetically. This is, not, this is not reflective of anything. Hey, Nancy. Thing of your words, you know, you might be eight and a half months, big as a blimp, and there are parts to pick up at John Deere. You go and do it because that's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. That's your job to go no matter how you feel, you, need, you go to John Deere, or sometimes we went to this John Deere, and then another John Deere, and another John Deere, to find the part. But it didn't make any difference if you were almost ready to go to the hospital or not. Well, <laughs> yes. I will also say, your worth is not derived from the availability of parts. <laughs> <laughs> because if that were the case, boy, you're pretty low right now, huh? Okay, so how do we determine worth then? Well, worth is inherent because you have personhood. Worth is not inherent in the animals the same way that it is inherent in you. Why? The re worth is not, the animals do not have inherent worth in the same way that you have inherent worth. Why not? What is the difference between you and him? Okay, yes. You, remember that you are created as the pinnacle of creation. This is another reason why it bothers me when people choose not to have, when they actively choose not to have children and instead have a whole house full of cats and dogs and they say, I don't want to have kids. I'll just have my fur babies instead. It makes me sick because they're not, they're not children. They're not humans. It's, it, yeah, it's all about what I feel. And, and that also applies this way too, by the way. I am not ready to have a child. Anybody who has had a child knows one thing. You are never ready. <laughs> Read as many books as you want. Buy as many toys and gadgets and gizmos as you want. You are never ready. And it begins right there in that hospital. Actually, probably before, when your wife turns to you and says, we need to go to the hospital. And all of a sudden, everything flies out the window because you think to yourself, what am I supposed to do? Is the baby coming now? Do I have to deliver the baby in the car? What's, I don't know how any of this works. And you're now in new territory. You weren't ready for that. Wouldn't matter if you read a book or not. Doesn't matter how many classes you go to. Doesn't matter what your bank account looks like. You're never ready for a child. Same thing with marriage. I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to wait. I'm going to determine this person's worth. And then if they have enough worth for me, I'll decide when I am ready to get married to them. Look, folks, anybody who's married can say just about the same thing as anyone who's had a child. When are you going to be ready to be married? When are you going to be ready to have that kind of a commitment to a human being and to look at that person the way that Christ looks at them and to be patient with them and to love and cherish them and to forgive them even when they don't do the things that please you, even when they provide discomfort for you. You're going to love them in, you know, despite 
all of that and stay faithful and true to them and never badmouth them. You know, you don't call your friends they say, well, rah, 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 can't believe, rah, 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 and then have the whole community say, boy, we hate that guy. Whoa, hate his guts. Oh, that girl, can't believe she said that. You know, when are you ready to have that kind of a commitment? When are you going to be ready to forgive unconditionally? Some of these women that have a surrogate mother because they don't want their body to be looking like they've had children. Yeah, you don't want your body to look like it had children. What now, you see? It's a, it's a completely foreign and bizarre mindset. Why do I not want my body to look like it had children? Because I still want my beach body. <laughs> There's going to come a day when you're not going to have it anyway. You're going to lose your beach body one way or another, and I think it'd be nicer to lose your beach body by having your own children. But that's just me. What do I know? Larry. Oh, that I want. Yeah. Sure, it's a piece of paper. Well, there's problem number one. If if all that marriage is is just a piece of paper, well, heck, then nobody needs. I I got pieces of paper. If you want pieces of paper, I'll give you pieces. Do you get, it's the point of getting married so you get a fancy certificate to hang up on your wall? Boy, I'm sure glad I did that because that looks really nice on the mantle. <laughs> if I wouldn't get that certificate, boy, you know what? I wouldn't have married you, that's for sure. But because you came with a certificate... Uh, yes, here's a fun story. There's that actually. Uh, Whether they're young or elderly. There's a lot of it in the in the elderly, because then they they collect two social security checks. What, what it what do you say about people who don't want to get married but still want to be together and have a family, and that their excuse for not getting married is that it's only a piece of paper? The big the big thing to start is just pick apart what they say. Listen very, this is, you have to listen carefully. If you want to ask questions and you want to, you know, be neato, mosquito asking trick questions like pasture, you just, all you have to do is listen. All you have to do is listen very carefully to what people say. If they say, marriage is just a piece of paper, so we'll just be together and we'll basically be married. And you say, what's problem number one? that marriage is just a piece of paper to you. Because if marriage is just secular, which is what they mean, that marriage is just a secular thing, and then I get a tax break and all that. I mean, if you want to argue secularly, you say, well, because you get a tax break. You, why, what's your motivation for, for getting married from the secular point of view? Well, it's, it's better for you in many situations that you are married, 
than that you are not. Now, if you're old, it's not because you collect two social security checks instead of just one. Or there's something about that. There, that's a huge problem, by the way, in the church. More pastors have to deal with cohabiting elderly people than they do with cohabitating young people. Go figure. A long time ago, they used to go and get a divorce in Las Vegas on December 31st. It's whatever you are at the end of the year, it's what you are. They go the very next day to the chapel and get married so they didn't have to change any titles in the property. And that was a true blue deal. They changed that. That's what they did. <laughs> Or they'll sit in the office and say, well, if we're not married, how do you claim these two kids get married? If you're married with kids, can't get it. I see a lot of that. Well, see, then the other problem is, what's your motivation for marriage? Well, it's money. And then it's all back to the question of worth. What's a marriage worth? I don't know, tax breaks, tax write-offs, kids, I don't know, money. It's always money. Always money. Your worth is because you are a human being. So whenever you begin to be a human being to the point when you are no longer a human being, that is the period of time that you derive worth. And part of that is because as a human being you have a soul. Why is it that the Lord says do not, do not murder? Because people are valuable. Because we are worth something. Because Larry is worth just as much as I am. And I do not have the right to de decide for myself that he doesn't have worth and then off him. Because he does have inherent worth. You have a soul. And the soul is not just a part of you because your body is not just a vessel. Your soul is you. Your body is you. Your soul is you. And they go together. That's why death is violent, because it's ripping apart. It's actually not separating halves from halves. It's ripping in half a whole. Just as an aside, this is why, this is why divorce is such a heinous thing. Uh, because in marriage, what do you create? One person. one person. So that nobody talks about it this way anymore, but the way that the old church, the early church and the medieval churches used to talk about marriage and divorce was in marriage you are creating, it is the generation of a new person. There are two fleshes coming together and it, when we say one flesh, we mean it in the full sense of it. It's not me and you, it's us. It's I. One flesh, one person. You have, you have, you have created, a, you have generated a new person where the Lord has by uniting the flesh. Then you're not two people. So divorce is not separating one from one. Divorce is dividing one in half, which is what death is. Ripping apart two holes. And then you're left with something incomplete. So what divorce ends up doing is it is a murder. Divorce is an abortion. It is the slaughter of a person, which is one reason why the church is so against it, although not as vocally so as it ought to be in the modern world. One of the worst mistakes the church ever made was accepting no-fault divorce, 
well, the state said it was okay, so I guess we'll just. And that's not, you know, the church doesn't think that's okay. I'll absolve you of your sins. If you, if you received or sought a divorce and you're guilty about it, you come to me and I will offer you forgiveness. But there are always consequences for sin. Divorce is never the way that things are supposed to be. It isn't a picture of what love looks like and a whole host of things, just generally speaking. Um, because of this idea of worth in personhood, too. Okay? Questions about the soul, personhood, worth, any of that, quickly before we go. Okay, good. We'll see you at the altar. Tomorrow, Tuesday.